From the island in the desert, it's Life Punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our feature storytellers exclaim themselves in exclamation mark, the opening show in our season held on November 28th, 2017 at Jump. Here are our featured storytellers, Yao Yin, Betsaida Chavez, and George Prentice. Now for stories with a real point, it's story time. Yao Yin. My name's Yao Yin. My life right now is an exclamation point. Every day is filled with new opportunities, new projects, new ideas, and new friends, which is very hard for me to believe. Because just a few months ago, I was going through a very difficult time, a personal crisis. At that time, I felt hopeless, powerless, and useless. I tried every possible way that I could think of to pull myself together, but it was simply impossible to get back on my feet. I thought to myself, maybe I need to try something new, something I've never done before. One day, I saw a model call on Facebook about a fashion show at Boise Art Museum. This is new to me. I've never walked on the runway. But wait, can I really do it? I started to recall all my rejections by various auditions when I was in China. Because I was never beautiful enough to be able to make it. To be honest, I have never felt beautiful growing up. Because in Asia, Beautiful girls typically have double eyelids, slim jawline, low cheekbones, and a small mouth. What about me? <laughs> I'm basically the opposite of all of that. I have monolids, meaning I don't have a crease in my eyelids. I have square jawline. I have high cheekbones and I have a big mouth. <laughs> you know what makes it even worse? My braces. Last time I went back home, I went to a party to see some of my childhood friends. At the end of the party, one of them wanted to take a picture of us all. But when he was just about to press the shutter button, he stopped and looked at me and said, yeah, you can't smile with your mouth open. You're wearing braces. They're going to ruin the picture. Close your mouth. Anyways, I have never felt beautiful. But after thinking about the fashion show for several days, I eventually decided to go to the audition. Because whether I fail or succeed, I got to do something to try to pull myself out of that pit of despair. So I went to the audition, and the lady in charge of the fashion show, Kelly, liked the way I walked. 
Luckily, I was selected to be a model for the runway. That was very therapeutic for someone in the middle of a crisis. The fashion show turned out to be a great success. Several weeks later, I got an email from Kelly asking me if I'm interested in doing another fashion show for her at Chateau de Fleurs in Eagle. So we did that. After that, Kelly and I kind of got, got to know each other a little better. In the beginning of October, Kelly introduced me to her friend, Daniel, who is a very talented photographer in New York. He has published many photos on Vogue Italia, which is one of the top fashion magazines in the world. So Daniel was coming to Boise to visit his family. And Kelly asked me, hey girl, do you want to do fo some photo shooting with him? And I said, sure, why not? Let's do it. So we kind of put a team together. Daniel was the photographer, Kylie was the wardrobe stylist, and I was the model. Now we need a hair and a makeup artist to join us. Daniel recommended Danielle, who is the hair and the makeup designer for Opera Idaho, and is an amazing artist. During the photo shoot, Danielle made a very interesting comment about my appearance. She said, wow, your monoliths are so pretty. <laughs> I was totally shocked, because nobody has ever said that to me before. Then she continued, your square jaw and high cheekbones are beautiful too. They allow me to create different looks for you. Not everyone can have different looks in one person. Eventually, we ended up doing four different looks with four sets of outfits. The first outfit was a denim outfit where I was wearing a light blue shirt, a denim jacket, a pair of jeans, and a pair of black boots. That outfit probably matched my real personality most closely, casual and laid back. The second outfit included a red sweater, a pair of orange pants, and a dark green trench coat. I looked serious and mature in that look. The third set was a full-length floral dress with burgundy knee-high boots. That outfit was the least like me. <laughs> Sexy and exotic. Oh, by the way, my hair was crimped. <laughs> I felt like I came from Tahiti. <laughs> the last set was an all-black outfit where I was wearing smoky eye makeup and a black dress. Chic and sophisticated. The photo shoot was very successful, and the photos got viral on the internet overnight. Since then, doors have started opening for me, and I got contacted by photographers, 
event coordinators, show managers, etc., etc. For example, two weeks ago, I was modeling for Boise Camera Club's photography workshop that happened right here at Jump. It's interesting, during the workshop, several photographers asked me to show my braces when I smiled because <laughs> they thought it was kind of cute. Last week, I was singing a Chinese duet song with my friend Jenny for the Festival of Trees. And in two weeks, I'll be acting in a musical called Traditions of Christmas at Nam Pacific Center. In that musical, I'll be playing several roles. And one of them is a grandma who got hit by a reindeer. <laughs> and I have to play dead on the stage for two minutes without moving a muscle. My life right now is an exclamation point. When I told my parents about all this, they wouldn't believe this modeling thing was happening to me. My dad even said, not in a million years did he ever imagine that I could become a model. Because nobody in the family is a model. And this has never been in the family sphere. Both of my parents are engineers. They instilled the importance of education into my brain since when I was very, very young. So I kept studying, studying, and studying, and earned my academic degrees one after another without seriously considering or pursuing other interests like modeling. Plus, I wasn't thought of as beautiful anyways, so I didn't know that I could actually do it. I guess from my modeling experience, I have learned that we don't always have to be defined by our family traditions. When everybody else is a scientist or engineer, you can definitely try something different. We don't always have to be held to the same beauty standards. Some people may not like monoliths, while others may find them just gorgeous. And we don't always have to be limited to what we have been doing. Just because I have been 100% focused on science doesn't mean I cannot branch out or explore new areas moving forward. An open mind for the future has allowed me to open doors. Now I'm excited and curious to see what lies ahead. Thank you. Betsaida Chavez. I was about to enter my senior year of college at the College of Idaho, and my friends and I would have conversations about our dreams and our careers and our goals. My close friend wanted to apply to a master's program in marine biology, and my other friend was looking forward to applying into a master's program in outdoor science education. And I wanted to get a master's in ecology and go to New Zealand and travel the world. 
but I wasn't going to be able to do that because I was undocumented, which meant that I didn't have a social security number. So I wasn't going to be able to pursue that career. You see, my parents and I um, immigrated to the US because we wanted to be together as a family. We're from a small town in Jalisco, Mexico, and my father had to travel a lot in order to work and provide for us. And it was very difficult for my brother, my mother, and I to not have him around. So when I was six years old, my mother, brother, and I picked up our things, and we traveled to Salt Lake City, where my father was working. We were there for about a year, and my parents heard then that there was more job opportunities in Eastern Oregon. So we picked up our things again, and we moved to Ontario. There, my parents worked long hours in the fields, in packing sheds. My mom worked at McDonald's for a while. We cleaned houses to get settled. My mom always told me, you know, if you work hard in school, and you push yourself, you know, dream big, and you'll be able to accomplish anything that you want. So I did just that. I got really good grades in high school, and um, senior year, I was going to graduate salutatorian. I had honors. And I even got my associate's degree at the same time as I was going to high school. Senior year came around, and I was looking forward to going to college. But because I didn't have a social security number, I wasn't going to be able to go. Thankfully, people around me, my mentors and other folks, were able to help me. And I was able to enroll at the College of Idaho. But because I lacked status, I wasn't going to be able to receive any financial aid from the government. So my parents worked extra hard to pay for my tuition out of pocket. And I got a couple of private scholarships as well to help um, pay for, for my career and my, my, um, my bachelor's. So there I was in 2012, that senior year, and I was feeling the same way that I was feeling in high school. Didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a social security number. I didn't have um, <clears throat> uh, my driver's license was soon going to expire. And I wasn't going to be able to renew it because the laws in Oregon had changed. And so I was soon going to be left um, um, without a driver's license as well. And I wasn't going to be able to pursue my master's degree either. So I was sitting at the parking lot of C of I one, that summer. And I had been volunteering there when I got a text message. It was from a close friend of mine. And it was a victory text message, like a congratulations. And it said something about President Obama. And I looked at it, and I didn't know what it meant. So it looked like big news. So I called my mom and asked her, have you heard anything about this? And she said, no. So she turned on the TV, and it was all over this. I mean, it was on the news. And we looked further into it. And it turns out that President Obama had taken executive action, and he had signed a program into place that was called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This program was going to allow um, certain people that met certain requirements to be able to 
be protected from deportation. You'd be able to get a social security number and an authorization card so you could work. And it was gonna be a two-year program, so you would have to be renewing every two years. You wouldn't be able to travel outside of the US though, because un unless you had permission, but coming back in would be risky. But we looked into it and I fulfilled all the requirements. So we gathered all the documents and we, which was a lot, and we put them in an envelope along with a check for $500 around there um, for the application fee. And as soon as that date came up that like we would be able to send the application in, we were on it. So we sent it in and a little bit later I got my fingerprints taken and then I waited. A couple months later, I received a letter from immigration and it said that I had been approved. Right after that, I got a worker authorization card. So I was gonna be able to get a job. And that was huge for me. I mean, that was a life changer. So I was finishing up college and right away I got a job. So I was doing both. And then after I graduated from C of I, I worked in the sciences for about a year. But then I had this urge that I just wanted to help others. And I signed up to do a year of service um, through a program. And they sent me to the New Zealand of the US, Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I ended up in, in Nashville doing social justice work. And I was there for about two years and I loved it. I was doing a job that I was passionate in. I was traveling and really I was taking advantage of all the doors that DACA was opening for me. It felt like I fit in, like I was a part of society here and I was being welcomed. It, just, it was just the best feeling. And so then I had this new career goal. I wanted to become a lawyer. So I came back to this, um, I came back to um, Idaho. I was out in Ontario for a little bit, but out in this area. And around that, that was last summer. So around that time, presidential elections were happening. And there was rumors that one of our candidates, Donald Trump, was going to get rid of DACA as soon as he became president. I was terrified. I thought, what if that happens? Does that mean that like immigration can come? Because they have all my information, so can they just come knock on my door and send me away? That's gonna mean I can't pursue school. So I was really nervous, but I was staying hopeful. And so, he was elected president. He took a look at the issue and decided that he wasn't gonna get rid of it. Whew, huge relief came over me. At this point, I was, start, I was, I was you know, feeling pretty excited. And around a little before September, well, before then, I, was, I, I started law school. So now I'm a first year law student at the University of Idaho here. And, thank you. and I was really excited about you know what was happening, but still kind of nervous um, about the environment, like political climate and stuff. But I was just staying hopeful. And right before September, there was more rumors because ten states got together and they signed a lawsuit and they told the government 
if you don't get rid of DACA, we're going to sue you. I was terrified, but just staying hopeful, that's really what's kept me going. Um, I, I remember the day came when they were gonna make the announcement, and that morning was a Tuesday, September 5th. I had my contracts class at 9.30, so I got ready and I showed up to class early. I put my headphones in and I had my phone on to the live streaming of the announcement. Jeff Sessions walked into the room and confirmed the rumors. He terminated DACA. I sat there and stared at my phone. I thought, he's gonna come back and make it better. I was in denial that that had happened. But he didn't come back. So I removed my headphones, I put my phone away, and tried to concentrate and put my thoughts together because class was about to start. And it hasn't gotten any better. You know, a week went by, and up until now, I've been struggling. If it wasn't for weekly therapy sessions, I don't know where my mental health would be right now. And this is a situation that 3,000 recipients are in here in the state of Idaho. There's about 750,000 of us throughout the country. And starting on March 6th, if Congress doesn't take action and do something to help people like myself pass, like if they don't pass a clean act, I might have to leave because that March 6th date, people will start losing status every single day. And my day's gonna come. It comes next December before Christmas. That means that I might not be able to finish law school and I might not become a lawyer and continue helping people. And it means that I might have to go back to Mexico where I only have very vague memories of I've never been anywhere else other than here. And I think the thing that's gonna hurt the most is leaving my family because we came here to be together and now I might have to leave. A few weeks ago I went home and my niece who's nine years old told me that in school they had an assignment to draw a picture of the person that they find the most inspirational. She told me that most kids drew pictures of their parents, but she drew a picture of me. And I'd like to stay here and be able to see her grow up. Thank you. George Prentice. So the, the people I've told this story to, I could count on two hands with a few extra fingers left over. Uh, so the very first job I ever had was a security guard. Um, it paid $2.10 an hour, 
and that was a lot of money. Uh, I was just a kid, uh, but I needed the money. Um, I grew up in Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls, New York, resort town, and I worked for the Burns International Security Company, um, and to command respect, the outfit that they give you is uh, 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 jet black pants, uh, white shirt, black tie, fire engine red blazer, and, and a hat that uh, looks like the captain of the love boat, um, and as if that commanded respect. So, uh, so what that means is uh, you're taking tickets or you're working the stage, and there's rock acts, uh, there's uh, Bob Dylan or Sly and the Family Stone, there's circuses and uh, ice shows that come into town, and uh, oh my gosh, uh, Elvis Presley was coming to town. Uh, so uh, this will give you a pretty good indication of how old I am. Uh, Elvis was still getting it done. Uh, this was the Vegas Elvis, uh, early 70s, uh, and he, and he uh, rarely left Las Vegas. Uh, so for him to come to uh, anywhere but Las Vegas was a very big deal. And he was coming to Niagara Falls for, for seven shows, seven nights, seven shows, pre-internet, sold out in a flash, and opening night, uh, George, you're working the stage. Uh, and, uh, and Elvis Presley's uh, people um, had special instructions for us, and they said the only words, the only words that you can tell people uh, in the audience are, please sit down so everyone can enjoy the show. Please sit down so everyone can enjoy the show. And they, they made us repeat it with them, please sit down so everyone can enjoy the show. And, and we're just like, what? Okay, fine. Uh, it's $2.10 an hour. Uh, so so uh, now what that means is there's about six of us in front of the stage, and the stage is about right in back of my head here. And uh, it's not an over-exaggeration that about 80% of the audience were, were women who grew up with Elvis Presley. Um, and uh, and they, were, they were pretty excited. Uh, so he comes out, to, there's uh, you know, the, the 2001 uh, overture, and he comes out and he's doing the karate stuff. He's got the white jumpsuit. He's really getting it done. The big, the big highlight is, uh, can't help falling in love with you. Uh, wise men, sit, right? Okay, so uh, Elvis, anyone, Elvis? No? Stop. Okay, so, uh, so while he's singing, one of his assistants comes over to him with a silk handkerchief to wipe the sweat from his brow, to dab the sweat, at which time Elvis takes the handkerchief and hands it down to someone in the audience. And they repeat this about 20 times. So the folks are, are I am pinned up against the stage. Um, and uh, 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 folks, if you sit down, everyone, everyone can enjoy the show. <laughs> it's not happening. Uh, and and, and there's, there's this woman, much older and much bigger than I was, uh, who was reaching as if I was, she saw through me as if I wasn't there. And she's reaching and pinning me up against the stage at, at, and I, I, I made the fatal mistake. I grabbed her arm, and our eyes locked. And I said, ma'am, if you sit down, everyone can enjoy the show. I swear to God, 
she reaches down and bites, bites me. And I mean, she takes a chunk. She draws blood, she takes a bite, and I am screaming like a five-year-old girl. Uh, and there's a security guard about 20 feet away. It's like, it's like and he can't move and nobody can move. So one of Elvis's band members sees all this happening and he puts his guitar down and he reaches down and hooks his arms under my armpits, pulls me up on the stage as if I'm a cadaver. They, they don't let me stand up. They keep me at an angle and, and drag me at an angle off the stage uh, to the local emergency room. Lots of tests, stitches, uh, uh, so, uh, so uh, exclamation points just filled my life, and I thought that kind of jump-started everything. Um, I, I, be, I, I said, oh, well, th you know, this is energy, this is good. I became a reporter, um, and, and I had all the luck in the world. I worked for Associated Press and United Press International and NBC and ABC. I saw terrible and wonderful things. Um, reported from combat zones and the White House and the Challenger explosion. I witnessed two executions. I saw too many dead bodies. And then, uh, and then quit. I retired a long time ago to go make a lot of money. I went into banking and, and, and then I represented uh, children in family court. Uh, and and, and uh, that was swell. And I lived in Manhattan, in Los Angeles, exclamation points there. I moved to Idaho 17 years ago to do nothing. <laughs> to do nothing, to retire and do nothing. Uh, but uh, exclamation points weren't done with me. So, uh, so I'm at my annual physical. I just moved to, uh, to Boise. Uh, and this is quite some time ago. I'm at my annual physical and we're at that stage where the doctor is, uh, has the little pen light and he's uh, looking in my eye and he leans in and he says, uh, how long you been shaking? Well, um, I, I thought he, he was looking through me as if I wasn't there. Because for the better part of 15 years, I had masked my tremors. With, uh, I, I over-exaggerated uh, my arms and my, my motions and my, my hyper-storytelling. And, um, and I said, well, about, about 15 years. And he said, do you want to do something about that? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, let, let's do something about that. So I um, went to a neurologist, and for, for uh, about three years and a lot of tests, we figured out um, that I was going from significant tremors to uh, borderline Parkinson's to full-on Parkinson's to uh, off-the-chain Parkinson's, lots of medication. And it ramped up and up and up and up and up over these 17 years to the point where a couple years ago my medication was too strong. And I was uh, dizzy and, and we had to dial it down and the doctor said, well, how do you feel about uh, shaking in public? And I said, well, it's a little late now. <laughs> because some time ago someone came to me and asked, uh, would you like to be on the radio? And I thought, okay, well, I can hide out there because I had retreated my personal life. I had, I had retreated from life. Um, but, uh, but life was, was coming for me, at least my professional life. 
and was saying, it, what, I'm, we're not done with you yet. And so uh, I went and hosted uh, Morning Edition. And the handshake deal was that we were going to uh, have a lot more long form interviews. We were going to take the show on the road. Did the show live from, uh, from Washington, D.C. on the morning that a man named Barack Obama became president. Um, and then someone said, uh, would you like to write about movies again? And I hadn't done that in decades. And I said, oh, oh well, oh, you want me to do that? Oh, okay, I can, I can do that. And someone said, would you like to be, uh, would you like to be a, a hard news journalist again in print? And I said, well, if you'll have me, okay, sure, and write about uh, criminal justice and the environment and politics, et cetera. So I have, uh, I've interviewed Nobel laureates and uh, strippers <laughs> and uh, Oscar winners, a couple of US presidents, everybody in between. Um, and it's not unusual for me to be shaking during those interviews. But they don't know what you know. And I have used that to my advantage. They think I'm nervous. <laughs> they think I'm nervous and they think they can take advantage of me and, and give me a line of bull. But I can come in a side door as good as anybody. <laughs> so when somebody wants to lecture me about uh, a, a P&L statement or a budget, they don't know that I've been a vice president of the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. If somebody wants to lecture me about social welfare, they don't know that I ran the largest group home for children in Idaho. If someone wants to talk to me about war or veterans affairs, they don't know that I buried both my parents at Arlington Cemetery. Um, but that's okay, they can think I'm nervous. And the people who know this, I could count on one hand which more often than not is shaking. <laughs> uh, but I'm not nervous. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, Marnie Ellis, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the exclamation mark show sponsor, Apple Plumbing and Remodeling. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessare. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guests were No Reaction from Boise Rock School. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night.